what can you do? What can you do? Go on then. As I am standing in for Matthew. Nobody calls him Matthew. Just me. No. To wind him up. Matt. I'm standing in for Matt, aren't I? Yeah. So. Due to illness. Due to illness. Due to illness. Slash corona because. uh, Oh yeah. Well. We're in lockdown again now, aren't we? Even if we we? wanted to, we'd have to smuggle him in, in some laundry. (laughs) Under your arm. He's too big for that. (laughs) Between the two of us, we couldn't carry Matt. No. If we are little people. We are the tiny people. And he is six foot of man. <laughs> oh, yes. Bless him. No, he is He is locked down in Merseyside. We are locked down in uh, Lancashire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those those 80 miles are now insurmountable. And apparently... Um, 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 she's, um... she's going to be reset. I'll just switch her off and on again. <laughs> processor had just died then mm-hmm. um non non-essential travel isn't it and all that i count this as I mean, essential travel to be but fair, I, I think matt could book this in as an eye test and we get away with it i'm just gonna take a mm. sip of my tea there and it was a sad day else. when he realized he needed glasses like me mm. Mm. but we're well, all getting old now so it's are. fine hey up i'm joe heathcote and this is consistently eccentric a podcast where i will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from british history Focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... So. Mm. That was a loud slip. Mm. I do apologise. Beg pardon. Okay, so. This story that I'm going to tell you today starts in the Regency era. Very good. Late 1700s. Thank you. Okay, there you go. For clarity. For clarity. And your three words... Oh, yeah, you do your three words, don't you? Right, okay. Your three words for this episode, hulks, (laughs) regulators... Oh, God. ...and Wolverhampton. Wanderers. Just Wolverhampton, the city, rather than the football team. Okay. Okay, I think this... We can confidently say this predates Wolves. I wouldn't know. I don't do football or history. Fantastic. so. So, we can assume that Charles Chubb was a man who was enjoying life as he had 12 children all to his wife the third of which I wasn't going to say he's enjoying life I'm going to say he's enjoying something else but okay yeah he's enjoying one aspect of life very much so well hopefully otherwise it's a very sad thing to have 12 children with no enjoyment he named his third child Charles Chubb Jr and he was born in 1779 very good not the first son, the third. Very good. No, 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 no. I, I'm assuming that the first two kids were female because Females. otherwise it is such a slap in the face. Isn't it? John, Robert, James. Charles. Charles Chubb, the apple of my eye. <laughs> the, the child that I will give my name to. I think we can safely assume the first two were, were females of a lady persuasion. Okay. And it would be cruel and unusual to name your first daughter Charles. Mm. Opposing a boy named Sue. Yeah. A girl named Charles. Mm. So the young Charles, Charlie Chubb Jr., he trained as a blacksmith Mm -hmm. and he moved to Portsea in Portsmouth where he opened a hardware shop. Okie dokie. He married Maria Hayter in in 1798. Mm -hmm. But the families, both the Chubbs and the Hayters, they didn't consent to the match. They weren't happy with the two of them getting together. Why not? We don't know. But whatever it was... What do you mean you don't know? What kind of... 
lank piece of information's that? Give me depths. Well, I'm I'm assuming that they didn't consent to the match, actually, because the only bit of information I got about the wedding was that mm. no member of either family attended. No, I'm I'm calling shenanigans on that. I'm saying Gretna Green. Well, no, mm. it was definitely they got married in Portsmouth. Oh, right, not Gretna Green. I mean, he was a blacksmith, so maybe they did get married at an anvil a la Gretna Green, but yeah. it was definitely a case that families weren't too keen on each other. That doesn't come up again. There's massive amounts of assumption there. Well, yeah. You've listened to the episodes. In 1803, though, so five years after they got married, Mm -hmm. the Napoleonic Wars kicked off, and this was brilliant for Charles. Okay. Showing the shrewdest of business acumen, he began specialising in custom ironwork for Navy ships. Very good. Including internal and external fittings and locks. Oh, right. Okay. I know who he is now. Yeah. Business boomed. And soon one of his younger brothers, Charlie Chubb Jr. the second. Please tell me you're joking. Of course I am. Jeremiah. Jeremiah Chubb. Chubb. He joined him in Portsmouth to help run the business. So he decided to overlook the marriage to the hater. Mm -hmm. And he was going to come to make... He's going to hate. hate, Yeah, he's going to make some of that tasty war profit. Mm-hmm. So for a decade, the war raged on and business boomed. And the Chubb brothers, they're making a killing. They're doing well. Hand over fist, the money comes into the till. Brilliant. Then, disaster. In 1815, Napoleon was defeated. And the war ended. Mm-hmm. And this left Portsmouth specifically with a few problems. Oh, yes. So firstly, the reduction in manufacturing related to the war hit the profitability of all the local businesses that for the last decade have been geared around the war effort. A lot of jobs went. You had a lot of unemployed people. Mm -hmm. And there was also the problem of the prison hulks in Portsmouth Harbour. Hulks! Yeah. What's a hulk? Well, these were ships that had been converted to prisons to deal with the increase in prisoners due to the war. Floating prisons? Yeah, floating prisons full of Frenchmen. (laughs) The inmates were then used in the docks as cheap labour. Mm. Also, many of the prisoners have figured out how to pick the very basic locks that were used on the ships in the docks. And as a result, theft from stores was rife, further cutting into profit. So the, the, the prisoners would unpick the locks on the cells on the ships. Yeah. They would shuffle on down to the harbour, which was full of um, storehouses, and they'd take bits and bobs that they might quite like to have. So better food... You know, those little yeah. niceties and comforts that you might yeah. be missing on a prison hulk. Yeah. So finally, after two years of this, in 1817, the British government announced that it would be reducing dock workers' wages to pre-war levels. So during during the war, they'd needed to keep dock workers on side. They'd agreed to a, a little bit of a, a bonus mm-hmm. for, for continuing the work. And they decided, yeah. we can't afford this. You know, the, the country had won the war, but it pretty much wrecked itself financially in order to do so. So they mm-hmm. couldn't afford to keep paying Didn't these bonuses. Itself. Yeah. It wrecked itself. So the cumulative effect of these things, poverty in Portsmouth. Yeah. Yeah. We won the war, but not winning the peace in Portsmouth. No. No. So unsurprisingly, in the same year, there was a major burglary in Portsmouth dockyards when a group of thieves, and I'm, I have no evidence to base this on, but I'm going to say... Possibly disgruntled dock workers? Possibly. Used a set of duplicate keys to get through the woefully inadequate locks. They mm-hmm. made away with tons of expensive goods that had been stored in warehouses waiting to be exported. 
So this wasn't a few French prisoners taking a few niceties. This was a gang of men going after the high-ticket items. Well, can you blame them? I mean, you've you've been used to living at a certain level, Hmm. and then all of a sudden that level's knocked way back. I mean, man's got to eat. A man's got to eat, indeed. But the Navy were still in charge of the docks, and they were embarrassed. You don't steal from the Royal Navy. I think you're fine, you do. Well, you're not meant to be able to. And the government, as you can imagine, they were furious. I think they just perpetually are, aren't they? The government, they're just angry at everything. I mean, if we have seen... What's that one where they argue, Joe, and they shout and go, rabble, rabble, rabble. Are you talking about Prime Minister's questions? Yeah, that's government, isn't it? That's... Again, a a lapse in knowledge of politics as well. Well, I mean, really, all, all this podcast is doing is just showing enormous gaps but that's okay because we're we're gonna fill those gaps okay with something i'm not gonna say knowledge (laughs) possibly not fact no possibly not fact but you will think (laughs) of it as fact if i say it with enough authority you will go it's fact and you may repeat it to others i won't go in so the government and the navy decided that they needed a foolproof lock a lock that couldn't be as easily penetrated unpickable yes and they offered a hundred guinea reward is which that a is, lot it's about 25 grand in today's money yeah not bad so it's a year's wage yeah. near enough yeah. for the first person who could provide them with a completely unpickable design oh, so on, the game is afoot now it is so up until this point the vast majority of locks in britain were made in wolverhampton and nearby Willenhall. Oh, Wolverhampton. Yeah. With an expanding empire of over 300 small family-run businesses in Willenhall. And they'd be expected to fulfil orders for thousands of locks at prices as low as a penny per lock. Right, OK, well, they're not going to be the top-notch ones. But I, I, aside from that, why Wolverhampton? It's just where the industry started. OK. And as you can imagine... Like Sheffield Steel? Yeah, a bit like Sheffield Steel. All right. It just is because it is. The infrastructure built up around it, so it was much easier to set up a new lock-making company in Wolverhampton than it was to set it up in different parts of the company. Okay. So, as you've said, not surprisingly, the focus being on quantity over quality resulted in locks that were pretty easy to pick. Cheapy-cheapy. Cheapy-cheapy, yeah. If you looked at them with a hard stare, they (laughs) might spring open. Okay. It was said at the like time... Like diary ones that you get on kids' diaries. Like those ones, exactly. The ones that you get on... And it's like yeah. all of your secrets. And actually, you can just pull them open. You can just pull them open, yeah. All you need to do is press the spring. Yeah. And it'll just... Like, ping, ping. Right, okay. It was said at the time that if a Willenhall locksmith dropped a lock that he was working on, he wouldn't bother to pick it up because he could make another one in less time. <gasps> That's the quality we're talking about. Shonky. Shonky is indeed a word that could be used. Yes. Uh, not surprisingly, these family businesses relied heavily on child labour. Mm. And as the Children's Employment Commission noted, in Willenhall... Children's the- Employment Committee? Yeah, no, the Children's Employment Commission. Commission? Yes, they were commissioned to look into child employment and to make sure it was up to snuff. Okay, so... They, they produced a report, and this, this is verbatim from the report. In Willenhall, the children are shamefully and most cruelly beaten with a horsewhip, strap, oh stick, hammer God. handle, or whatever tool is nearest to hand, or are struck with the clenched, clenched fist of the hand. So if you couldn't even be bothered to pick up a tool to beat your child, labourer, you could, you could just 
hit them with a closed fist. Uh, it should be said that there was a slight increase in the quality of Wolverhampton locks, but not close to the quality that the government now felt they needed. So beating the children was starting to pay dividends. Because I'm okay, guessing by str- this struggling point... Struggling with that point as a, as a mother yeah. of two delightful beings of my own. Um, the eldest would be working in a, you know, in a lock, uh, a tiny lock maker's... If being, she would with those little fingers, yeah. for sure, but no. Being roundly beaten with a horse whip daily oh, to increase God, productivity. Mean... So, right, I'm gonna have to, my brain's gonna have to gloss over that yes. fact, okay. So, a year after the reward was offered, nobody. What's that rustling? What's occurring? Is it me, Brew? Oh, um, we're back. Are we back? I hope we're back. Were, were we not in properly? We we are still hopefully recording. I'll just to the end, see that we are. Yes. We're still recording. We'll carry on. So, a year after the reward was offered, Jeremiah Chubb patented the Chubb Detector Lock. Mm. This was uh, patent number 4219, should you care. This lock had a regulator which would render the lock unopenable if there was any indication that someone had attempted to pick it so if you just jammed a lock pick in there Mm willy-nilly it would essentially clamp down okay cool it could then only be reset using a regulator key not only did this make it impossible for burglars to pick using conventional tools but it also let the owner of the lock know that someone had attempted to break in Mm. so that they could then take extra precautions Maybe hiring a big man with a stick to stand near the thing that was locked. Mm, possibly the person who beats children. He seems good and handy with a whip. Oh, he's got a strong arm. So, Jeremiah won the 100 guineas and the brothers decided to go into the business of manufacturing locks full-time. Well, what else were they doing? Well, they, like I say, they were just um, running a hardware store, so they were making oh, lots yeah, of things out of metal. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was a he was a, a blacksmith. He was making lots of metal things, but they decided actually this was the way to go. Okay. However, the initial cost of six guineas each was significant, and the company was struggling with the cost of transporting the raw materials to Portsmouth. Mm-hmm. There was also a lack of trained locksmiths in the Portsmouth area because everyone was into building things for ships. Yep. This made the company less profitable than the brothers had initially hoped. Oh dear. So almost as soon as the dream started, the dream ended. And Jeremiah himself, the guy who'd invented this lock, he cashed out and left for France and then moved to America to work as a machinist. So he said, this ain't... This ain't. Like France? That seems a bit dramatic. That seems like all toys out of pram. Let's just fling caution to the wind. Not once, but twice. First to France for baguettes and brie. Secondly to America was it the Americas then? Had we landed? Yes, must yes have done. we'd landed. Yeah, we had colonies there. He, he moved to one of the 13 colonies, yes. Okay. So, Jeremiah, he was, he was the brains behind the operation and he buggered off. But Charles, young Charlie boy, he would not be deterred. And mm-hmm. he made the decision in 1820 that the way to start making money was to sell his Portsmouth premises mm-hmm. and to move his company to... I can't remember the last thing he said... Wolverhampton? Yes, to ah, Wolverhampton yay. to focus solely on producing the Chublocks. Up until this point, he had been continuing to make 
other things, cutlery, stoves, kitchen ranges, and even fancy goods like French lamps. I don't <gasps> know what a French lamp is, but he made them. Was it... Is it not those lamps you can move around, like things what were hanging on carriages and stuff? I don't, I don't know. Are they not French lamps? I think they're French... Those ones... Well, Joe, those those ones. I'm doing the action now. Well, you hang- Emma's miming a handle. Yeah, a handle. Those big ones. The big ones with a handle. Yeah, are they Maybe. not French lamps? I don't know. I'm going to Google this afterwards. Okay, I'm sure many people French will. Lamp. This is the enduring mystery of the episode, obviously. Mm-hmm, obviously. Uh, so in Wolverhampton, he had access to the raw materials and to lots of skilled workers. No, no. Because you've got your thripney bit fling it on the floor no it's not worth it i'll make a new one crappy old locksmiths i mean they're not going to be used to making quality okay but they could be upskilled easier Possibly, potentially. They, they at least knew the basic rudimentary sort of workings of a lock this was just oh, an advanced convinced. level of that right, okay all of these measures reduced costs and you know in business you want to reduce the cost to make make your profit margins well you do have to have your margins yes yeah. so He's he's doing the right thing here. Okay. 1820 also marked the moment when Charles was finally able to convince the Admiralty to replace their old locks with the new Chubb model, despite the cost. So since his since his brother won the contract for making an unpickable lock, he won the competition. Mm-hmm. The Navy hadn't actually started buying the locks that they'd commissioned to have designed mm-hmm. because of the cost. Right. But Charles had kept lobbying them and saying, no, you really do need these locks. These locks right. are unpickable locks. Mm-hmm. You think, you, yes, it's an outlay, but think of the money that you're saving by the unstolen goods that you will now have well, yeah, available I mean, uh, to you. you. Know, people fleecing your left, right, and centre. But goods. But that was just the that was just the first part of his lobbying. Because okay. three years later, after more hard lobbying, uh-huh. talking to people in the know, mm-hmm. getting the nod and the wink, doing nush, the secret nush. handshake. Mm-hmm. He received a special license from George the Fourth to become the sole supplier of locks to the not only the post office, that's a big enough plum. The Poe. Yes, the Poe. But also her his Majesty, His Majesty's prison service. Think of the amount of locks you need for the prison service. Oh yeah, like back in the day when those jailers had those big bunches of keys. Yes, this is pay dirt oh. right now. <laughs> Charles was also able to refine his brother's design, removing the need for a separate regulator key in 1824. So he's streamlining the design. He's he's upskilling it. This is like the equivalent of the new iPhone. Also, Mm. less less items, less material. Ah, and less keys to lose. Less keys to lose. Mm. Although for some reason you did still need a radiator key. I don't know why. Then, in 1828, the Duke of Wellington, he contracted Charles, okay? Mm -hmm. The Duke was still riding high after his victory at Waterloo, because why wouldn't you? You'd be living off that till the day you died, and I I believe you did. Just a song alone. Yes. (laughs) Which he also commissioned. (laughs) Which he also commissioned. (laughs) It just took a long time in development. It did. I mean, the lyrics are classic. What can you say? It was worth the wait. Yeah. He's He was at this time also the head of the armed forces and the biggest celebrity in Britain. Mm-hmm. So he was the man. He asked representatives from the Chubb Company to try and pick the locks on his front door at Aspley House, mm-hmm. which they did with ease. He then had all the locks replaced with Chubb locks. Mm-hmm. Overnight, because you know what rich people are like, mm-hmm. it made Chubb locks the most 
desirable item to have. Wow, yeah. You would come and show people your new lock. Him with the boots, he's got them fancy locks. Yeah. I want... I've got the boots, now I want the lock. I want the, I've got the boots and now I want me some locks yeah. to go with my boots because ah. apparently the two are compatible, yes. To celebrate, Charles joined the worshipful company of spectacle makers. What? He joined the worshipful company of spectacle makers. He was made a member. I don't know what worshipful means. It was just the name. Company. The worshipful company. It was basically a club of people who made glasses. And he joined Spec them. savers. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> to celebrate, Charles joined Spec Savers on a two for one deal. No, he joined the worshipful company of spectacle makers. I do not know why. I couldn't find any evidence that he ever made spectacles, that he had anything to do with glass de- glasses design. Are you he- sure it was him? Yes. Okay. Also in 1828, his brother, the originator of the lock, Jeremiah, he returned from America. Oh, done with the, done with the burger and chips. No, yeah. no, he, he came back. He'd, he'd been busy out there. He had an American wife called Amelia and a son in tow. Called? Son. It was his son. I do not have the name. Brandon. He was called Hunter. Of course. No, he was called Scout. Um... <laughs> Charles welcomed his little brother back into the company as a salesman. Oh, that's a bit mean. It is a little bit mean. But then, you know, they'd set up this company together. Because it's not like he left him high and dry, is what I'm saying. As soon as the going got tough, little brother swanned off to have a little gap yard that lasted eight yard. Yeah, I know he gap yard, but, but he did, you know, he did pay his due and left his brother with something mm. you know he didn't just you know say right okay well i'm just gonna rob all this money i'm gonna take it i'm gonna you know mm. I, I think he's been a bit mean there well whatever the case his little brother's got a job he's got okay. an american wife he's got a kid mm-hmm. we assume he's relatively happy he's enjoyed his time you know across on a different continent and mm-hmm. he's come back mm-hmm. and maybe he's just got to pay his dues for a little bit you know, to show his brother that he's a bit sorry for bailing on him. Okay. So in 1835, and it seems a bit weird that it's after his brother comes back, Charles decided to move to a new challenge and he received a patent for a burglar-resistant safe. So he didn't design anything new mm-hmm. while his brother, little brother was away and his little brother came back as an, air quotes, salesman. And then suddenly <gasps> they had a new thing in the works. Right, so essentially, like, Charles is like the head of the company he knows his shit he knows how to sell he's things. the steve jobs of this operation but his brother's the inventor isn't he he's yeah he's the was <gasps> um so he opened a safe factory in london two years later to oh. focus so he now has two different operations going he's got the lock company in wolverhampton he's got the safe company in london so he closed the one in portsmouth yeah that was way back that's Port- way back portsmouth's, portsmouth's done okay that's just dust now yeah right okay what about glasses what's going on with his glasses he's just a member weird i okay. don't know why meanwhile jeremiah's son had died of the measles and his oh, wife no! his wife had returned to america without him so the happy family had broken up quite um terribly uh he threw himself back into business with his brother at this point so i think this was the point at which his brother went yeah i can't keep saying you're just a salesman you've had a bit of a a shitty do Mm -hmm. come on back in and they did they hugged it out and they got it sorted Mm -hmm. uh so 
he began reappearing on the patent applications at this point. Mm-hmm. And in 1839, with improvements to the Chubb safe, was one of his first patents. Very including good. the first ever fire-resistant safe. Ooh. Which is quite a thing to have. Well, yes. Mm. By this point, Charles, following on from dear old daddy, mm-hmm. had 11 children. All right, so he's been busy as well. Yeah, oh, he's been busy. Uh, he knew he was getting older. And his brother, Jeremiah, was now, to add to the shit sandwich of dead son, wife left him, he was in failing health. Oh, no. So Charles decided to name his son... Bob. John, as his partner and successor. (sighs) Tumbleweed moment there. So Charlie Boy... The, the the older statesman, he died on May 16th, 1846. Right. His sickly little brother, Jeremiah, lasted just over a year longer, dying in 1847. Oh, God. Neither the Chubb detector lock or the Chubb safe had been beaten in their lifetime. So wow. F- from the point that they said they'd made an unpickable lock to yeah. their deathbeds, that was held true. It okay. was unpickable. Fab. Well done then. Well done. Four years later, though, an yeah. American called A.C. Hobbs demonstrated a method of picking the Chubb detector lock in just seven minutes at the Great Exhibition. What, that Great Exhibition, what was in London? Yes. Ooh. So they they put the unpickable locks there as a way of saying, look at English ingenuity, look at how yeah. good we are. Yeah. And a, an American, a yank, came over and it took him a piddling, piddling seven minutes to crack it. Wow. Yeah? This was particularly embarrassing for the Chubb Company as they had been commissioned to build a bespoke locking safe for the Koh-i-Noor Diamond, one of the largest cut diamonds in the world and a recent gift to Queen Victoria to celebrate the annexation of the Punjab in 1849. And by annexation, you can read hostile takeover of natives. Oh, I mean, yeah. we're at it again. <sighs> the diamond itself is said to bring bad luck to any man who wears it. So to this day, it has only ever been worn by female members of the royal family because the royals are smart. Always thinking. Yeah, Always bad thinking. luck to a man. I am no man. I am woman. <laughs> yes. And forth the diamond. The diamond that only I, with my uterus, may wear. And breasty dumplings. And breasty dumplings, left and right. Okay, so, however... In spite of this, Chubb received a contract to produce the lock for the very first post boxes in 1851. Mm-hmm. And the company continued to expand well into the 20th century, as we very well know. We do indeed. Mm. The Chubb name Chubb. was also mentioned in two separate Sherlock Holmes stories as a way of demonstrating mm-hmm. that the lock was unpickable. So it was actually, in the Sherlock Holmes stories, a shorthand for, well, we can safely say that they didn't come in via this window. Or we can safely say that they didn't get into that safe. Wow, so like a shorthand for couldn't possibly. Couldn't possibly. Even Sherlock Holmes was so impressed by the Chubb lock that he just, forget about it. Well, they didn't get in there. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up, Watson, you idiot. Only a yank can get in there and he needs a good seven minutes. (laughs) The Chubb name continues to this day as a provider of security and fire safety systems. So there you go, a lasting British company. Legacy. And a legacy that they provided to us that all started 
with, way back when with, with the fact that we put really shitty locks on french prisoners and they stole stuff and they stole stuff wow well there, so there you, you go are. there's the story of the chub lock company and its birth mm. so well, there you go yes. even well, even things that. as as humdrum as a lock can have an interesting tale behind them they can they mm. can and you know, I don't think I'll ever look at one in quite the same way again. I'll be thinking of Mr. Chubb and his naughtiness. There was actually another unpickable lock. I can't remember the name of it, but mm. that A.C. A. Hobbs picked that one as well. Only that one he did over the course of several months. Um, right. So yeah. fluke then. No, because no, Because I no. don't think it took... Mu- it, it can't possibly have taken months. No, it took him months. He kept coming back to it. Oh, right. Okay. I think he, it was over the course of a month. And while he wasn't working on it they sort of locked down the lock so that it couldn't be tampered with in between but he managed to unpick that and do you know what he went on to do rob things probably no he went on to um start to sell his own locks go on in rival company i can't remember the name of the company but he did so his entire thing was i will prove that these unpickable locks can be picked and then i the person who did it will show my lock which i say is unpickable so it really, you know, in terms of an advertising campaign to, yeah. to start your business, it's brilliant. The other bit I didn't mention. Yeah. When they presented the Chubb Lock to mm-hmm. the Navy, mm-hmm. they happened to have a person who was famed for lock picking on one of the prison ships. Right. And as a way of testing whether what, what the Chubb brothers said was true was actually true, they gave this lock to the man and said, if you can pick it, we will immediately release you. And he went at it for months and was unable to. Wow. You can imagine just frantically. Oh, the frustration. Yeah. And the, the growing sense of doom yeah, when yeah. he realised he couldn't yeah, do he it. Couldn't and the, do it. Oh, man. Because when it, when they said, right, we're going to hand you a lock and if you can pick it, you can get out. At first, he must have thought, I've just been given a golden ticket here. I've got a golden ticket. And then the realisation that no matter what he tried, he couldn't do it. And he ended up just having to... The worst bit was he had to admit defeat, so he had to hand the lock back to the jailers and say, I'll I'll be here for a while longer yet, thank you. Oh, no, I keep it. I keep going. You keep going. I keep going. You you die of starvation. I die of starvation before I gave in defeatist. Four stone, skeletal yeah. <laughs> hands, still working. You don't need the lock picks anymore. No, you can just use, use the my, bones I'll of your finger. Fingers. I'll just use my fingers, get right in there. Yeah, like an eye eye, yeah. picking at a <laughs> bit of bark. Yeah. yeah. Like Gollum. Oh, witchy finger. My precious. <laughs> we can unlock it. <laughs> Never more. Oh, yeah, so, right. There you are. That is your first well, solo episode recorded. it is i do have just one just one little question is it about the spectacle makers i do not know no it's not it's about the yank that picked the lock yeah ac hobbs right is he the only person who could do it he was the first person so subsequent to that other people subsequent to that i did a little burp other people have picked it um but he was the first and he did it at the great exhibition so why did they carry on using that design if it was def- it was kind of like defunct? It, if you it, see what it I wasn't mean. that it was defunct. He did it in seven minutes, uh-huh. and he used specialist tools to do it. Right. So when when they're saying you know he he didn't just walk up and just boom and open it. Uh-huh. So it's 
you know, still had quite a... It was still going to stop your common or garden burglar. Yes. Or sneak right, thief. Right, okay. You That's know. fine. This, that, this was my only question, really. Yeah. It was just kind of like, well, if it was that pickable... It wasn't that pickable. It just wasn't unpickable anymore. Right. It's okay. like with the other one. You're probably not going to get a month straight to work on a lock. So technically no. it wasn't unpickable anymore. But in terms of your day-to-day locking a bank vault when the bank manager is going to be back tomorrow, mm-hmm. nobody is still functionally unpickable. Yeah. But it was all as a sort of advertising campaign for his own locks to go, you yeah. saw what I did to those English locks. Now, buy American. Reliable. Trustworthy. Wow. Yeah. That's not a claim that... No. No. Stop. Not, in the, not in the current climate. You need to stop dating the episodes with these kinds of things. They're supposed to be timeless. For someone who doesn't like politics, you bring it into pretty much everything we record on some some way. We are. But we are politically... What's the word? Tumultuous. Tum, are you going for tumultuous? Tumultuous! Okay. <laughs> I knew there was a word. Yes. Us personally are politically tumultuous? America is. It's in turmoil at the moment. It yes. is. Yeah. Okay. Hopefully that won't... Well, hopefully that will date it. I'd like to think it would settle down and people go, oh, yes, we know oh, what... Oh, back when. We know what period <laughs> you're thinking about, not... Yeah. Mm. Oh, mm. Mm. And the shitstorm continued. No, right, let's let's hope it all sorts out. Yeah. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. What a what a great downer to leave it on. Thank Sorry. You. Thank you.